Hello and welcome back to another ESDF podcast. My name's Chris Starwin. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of ESDFanalysis.com and I'm joined as ever by our lead analyst, Lee Scott. Hi, Chris. Lee, you've done some great work yet again, putting together four excellent subjects for us to discuss in today's conversation. So just so the listeners know what to look forward to, we're going to be talking about the success of Atalanta under Gianpieri Gasparini. We're going to be looking at Schalke under Domenico Tedesco. We're going to be looking at Hossum Hour and the success of the Leon Academy. And finally, we're going to have a little bit of a chat around Everton. So Lee, let's, uh, let's make a start with Atalanta. Now, Lee, Atalanta have uh, become quite a well-known side over the last couple of seasons under Gianpieri Gasparini. How would you describe the system that he's using there? Gasparini is quite an interesting coach. He's not he's not exactly a newcomer in Italian football. He he has only worked in Italy, but he's I believe he's sixty years old now. So he has built up a, a body of experience over time. Both his his main kind of success came with Genoa where he was for a long time using his, his favourite 3-4-3 system. Um, he tried to take that with him. He, he got a bigger job on the back of his success at Genoa. He got the, the Inter job. But unfortunately, the 3-4-3 and his kind of dogmatic style didn't quite suit the club at the time. Inter were a club in chaos even more so then than they are now. And, and they kind of fell apart at the seams a little bit, and he ended up paying the price for that with his job. When he, when he arrived at Atalanta, I mean, Atalanta are a club who are quite interesting, not only in terms of their performance under Gasparini in the last two seasons, but they're a club that's firmly established in Serie A, despite not really spending any significant money. They, they Potentially, you could argue, certainly, that they've got the best youth academy in Italy, with perhaps only Juventus rivaling them for that. And this has allowed them to take through their own players and to sell them on at a profit, and then just to keep putting the money back into the club. So they're a very self-sufficient club. Under Gasparini in the last two seasons, we've seen we've seen a variant of the three four three system that Gasparini favours. So the defensive block is exactly the same: three centre halves. There's no there's no tricks or or feints here. It's just three standard Italian centre halves who defend very very well. The four in the midfield, two wing backs flanked by two central players, and then it's in the front three that you kind of get a little bit of variation. We either see Atalanta line up with two players behind the one striker or with one player behind two strikers so they kind of have a little bit of flexibility in the way they set up. And when you talk about the, the flexibility in the, in the front three there, uh, are you talking about two players, two central players sitting sitting behind the, the main striker or are we talking about two players that are coming from the wide areas? I think if you were to mark the, the system down on paper you would put them down in the central positions but the, the beauty of the Atlanta system is that they're so fluid when they attack so the likes of um, Alejandro Gomez, who's the Argentinian international, that is the captain of the club and really the heartbeat of the team, he starts behind the strikers all the time. But more often than not, you'll see him pop up in the half spaces or out in the wide areas. He, he's free to roam around really and to take up positions where he can connect with teammates and to really cause the opposition problems. So behind, they, they have an, an Italian striker called Andrea Pitania, who is, to look at him, he's over six feet tall, very powerfully built. You kind of think that he's going to be your stereotypical target man. 
but he's actually excellent on the floor. You can use the cliche if you want. He's got great feet for a big man. And that that is very much the picture that you get with Batania. So he can be the focal point as a striker. He can hold the ball up. He's able to run in behind when the, the situation calls for it. And he's a good finisher. So he pro- provides the focal point for the attack. And then whoever else is playing alongside him or alongside Gomez, they're kind of free to move around the final third. Okay, so then... Gasparini's had to go through a, sort of quite a lot of change as well in, in the in the two seasons. Atalanta do very well. Bigger clubs start having a look at their players and these players typically move on. So which players are standing out this season and could well be on uh, on some of the larger size shopping list over the summer? Well, one of the standout, standout players in defence certainly is already at another club. Uh, we spoke about him last week when we discussed Juventus, but Mattia Caldara, young Italian centre-half, he has already been signed by Juventus and as we spoke about last week, Juventus have a habit of doing these deals. They sign players from other clubs in Italy and then kind of leave them alone for one or two seasons just to, to finish their development, as it were. So he's certainly one who stood out. Um, Brian Cristante, who's a central midfielder, they, they actually have him on loan at the moment, I believe. So he's not a permanent player for Atalanta. He's on loan, I think, from Benfica. Um, he's one I think will be talked about a lot in the summer. I think I've already seen links in certain media outlets to English clubs looking at Cristante. He's a player who plays from the centre or from, from time to time partners Gomez behind the striker. So he's kind of that link between the midfield and the attack. He's he's capable of getting into the penalty area, very much a Frank Lampard type, if you like, with those late runs into the penalty area to get in the end of things. He's very technically good and I, I think he will have a big future. Pitania is an interesting striker. Um, as I say, he's he's not definitely one or the other. He very much reminds me of Graziano Pelli, who was obviously at Southampton for a period before going to China. Pelli was a Pitania has arguably got more potential than Pelli did. Pelli made the most out of his talent, I think, and kind of reached a a level that not a lot of people saw from him as a young striker. Pitania has a great deal of potential if he gets the right move. He's the kind of player who fits Gasparini perfectly in, in what he's asked to do, and he could be an interesting one for clubs to look at in the summer. But the star, the absolute star of Atalanta, is Gomez, who's got an outside shout of being in the Argentine squad for the, the World Cup. And for a, an attacking player who's playing at Atalanta to manage to get into the Argentina mm-hmm. squad, when you consider the attacking talent they have, that's just really a testament to just how good he is. He's he's one of the, the most important players, I think, if you... Consider the level of importance for a player to his club at any given moment. Gomez would kind of come out on top of that metric. He's he's everything to Atalanta. He's very much the heartbeat and he's the attacking focus and kind of brings the whole club around him, if you like. And for and for people who aren't too familiar with Gomez, what sort of what sort of style of player is he? If you were to liken him to any of the other, let's say, better known Argentine attacking players at the moment, where where do the similarities lie? He's he's very much you would almost call him stereotypically Argentine. He's if you remember Ariel Ortega, mm. who was a, an Argentine attacking midfielder for for a period of time, had a long career in Europe. He reminds me a lot of Ortega and his movements. He's he's got a low centre of gravity, quite small, um, not exactly. He, I wouldn't say he was slight. He's he's strong in the ball, but it's his his ability. Whenever he picks up possession, he's somebody who's positive. So he has that. Ortega was the same. Um, you almost want to, you know, this stares out for a long time. Whenever an attacking midfielder came through in Argentinian football, they were likened, they were called the next Maradona. And Ortega was one of those. And 
Gomez has a little bit of that about him. His his willingness to take the ball and to drive at defenders. It may not be, you know, he may not have the quickest feet. He may not beat you with a trick necessarily, but he is a great understanding of space and how to attack that space. And I think that's one of the standouts of his game. He's technically one of the the best players in Serie A, certainly. And obviously, last season, um, or the end of last season, Atalanta went through the through the change again. T- tell us about some of the players who uh, who moved on from Atalanta over the summer and and, and where they where they are now and how they're getting on. Well, the club, as as tends to be with Atalanta, I've touched upon. They they develop players and they sell them on. That's kind of their operating model. In the summer, we saw Frank Kessie, the Ivorian midfielder who I've profiled, I believe, in the past for ESDF. He he made the move to Milan when Milan were spending all their money. Andrea Conti, who was a right-back, who was with um, Atalanta, an Italian international right-back, right-wing-back, he also made the move to Milan. So two players straight away were identified by Milan when they were coming in looking to rebuild their squad, and, and they made the move across across the north of Italy into Milan, and they were very much the heartbeats of of Atalanta last season. Kessie in particular was the, the engine in the centre midfield who drove everything forward. So he was he proved a big miss when he first moved, but Atalanta, as they always do, have kind of rebounded and found an answer to that problem. The, the other one that stood out actually made the move last January, so it wasn't quite in the summer, but Roberto Gagliardini is a central midfielder, another Italian international. He moved to Inter Milan, and straight away, as soon as he made the move, he embedded himself in the Inter first team. I think he's had a little bit of a slower season so far this season, but he's certainly somebody who has age on his side. He's very technical, technically good. He's kind of a good player attacking, arriving at the penalty area, playing around the outside in the final third. So he's got a lot of facets to his game that will be positive for Inter going forward. And I can see him settling down after this season and going on to become a, a key player for them. I guess I guess listeners who are sort of listening to this and don't know a great deal about Atalanta and might know a little bit more about the Premier League in England, for example, might be sort of feeling a bit of a similarity between Atalanta and, say, Southampton from a couple of years ago, certainly. I mean, obviously Southampton are having a, a far tougher run of it uh, this time round. Is, is that fair to say, then, that there's there's a similarity in model between the clubs where they, they invest heavily in getting the, the youth academy sort of side of things right to with a view of then giving the players the progression path to be able to come through and play first team football and then look to sell repeat and and continue in that way yeah you can definitely see that chris i think that southampton the models are slightly different i think that atalanta have a, a firmer pathway from the youth team to the first team than southampton do um, Southampton are, are obviously very well known for the work they do at youth level but we haven't seen as much in terms of players coming through as we may have. You can look at the James Ward-Prowse or, or Matthew Taggart. These, these kind of players are coming through in the Southampton first team, but Atalanta tend to do that a little bit better. But on the flip side, the recruitment and the first team recruitment at Southampton could be argued is stronger than it is at Atalanta. They they seem to be better at taking in these players from other markets. Obviously, they, the English game, there's a little bit more money there, so they have more scope to do so. So they will take in the, the Virgil van Dykes or the Sadio Manes, these players that they can develop and sell on. I think there's more of that goes on than does for Atalanta, but certainly you, you could compare the two clubs. And how do Atalanta then continue to perform so well dis- despite losing so many of their key focal points? The key that they have, I mean, they, they're an exceptionally well-run club. I think if you see a club who uh, are able to continually reinvent themselves at this level and with this type of recruitment and player development, I think you have to look beyond the first-team coach. 
you kind of have to look above that the structures that exist within the club so they their board their, their chairman are extremely patient they they have excellent people and talent identification and player development roles throughout the academy and these people and these players that come in to play for Atalanta they're, they're coached up in such a way that can clearly come in and make an impact at some level for the first team so I think the, the, the ability to continually reinvent themselves with the same theme, I mean now you've got Gasparini in charge playing a 3-4-2-1 but at the end of the season if Gasparini needs to move on there's no guarantee that the next coach coming in will play that way mm. so it's important that they're able to train up their young players and develop these players with an ability to understand different tactical systems which is something that's that I think is missing in British football quite a lot in British football we tend to develop players to play very defined roles if you like that might be changing slightly with the likes of Jaden Sancho and Phil Foden I think these are players who who do fit that almost European model of of being well-rounded with a tactical education so I think the ability at the bottom to do this and to retain the staff that are doing this for, for a club who are largely provincial they, they're not exactly hugely well known outside of, of um, Italian football until really this season when they had a good run in Europe so the fact that they can keep reinventing these players and developing these players speaks very highly to the systems that they have in place. No, definitely. And you, you mentioned there Gasparino potentially sort of uh, potentially going at the end of the season. You've also mentioned that his age being sort of in and around the, the 60 mark. Do you think he's likely to, to have another season or continue his career, maybe even finish his career at Atalanta? Or is he likely to, to have that fire of having another stab at a big club? I think that that could be the point. I think the the almost sense of unfinished business that you had after Inter Inter was a a disaster for Gasparini in many ways. They they didn't have the squad or the the capacity to adapt to his system, and which was very strange because when he was recruited from Genoa, he was recruited on the basis of his ability to play in a three four three and you know the success that he'd had. So there was kind of a, an understanding I think that Inter would try to make that switch and the personnel would be bought to fit that and that never happened so whether he decides that he he wants another crack, I can't see him moving out of Italian football That's certainly I, I don't see that at all I think he's very well suited to Serie A and he's very well settled there, especially at 60 now, I don't think he's going to want to make a move to another European country but you'd have to question how many clubs that you could argue are bigger than Atalanta at the moment and, and Serie A will be looking for a new coach next season arguably if um, if, Seri, if Sarri sorry, moves on from Napoli then you could see him going into a club like Napoli and maybe having an impact but that certainly that, that takes a lot of dominoes to fall for that to happen um, I can see him still being at Atalanta next season no, it certainly sounds that could like that could well be the the case. I mean, even with the potential salary move, if that if that does actually happen, you, you've got a question though whether Napoli are going to look back at his time at Inter and, and have a question mark over his ability to to coach in a in, in on a bigger stage than the one he's already on. And Napoli is going to be such an attractive proposition to many many coaches um, if there is a job vacancy there next season that they're probably going to be looking. Uh, in, in the next bracket up, would that be fair to say? I think so. I mean, there are issues that Napoli aren't the same as Atalanta in terms of the structure around the coach. I think a lot more of Napoli's success is down to the coach than it possibly is at Atalanta. So it will be interesting to see what happens when Sarri does make the move. If he makes the move, he might be somebody who stays at Napoli for a few years and really tries to build something. 
long-standing. Um, but I think if he does move, I don't know if the next coach will be able to have the same success as he has. And before we move away from Serie A and take, and take the leap over into Germany, Lee, we, we've got to ask the question that we're going to be asking for the rest of the season. Are Napoli going to win Serie A? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I still think they are. Excellent stuff. Okay, so we're going to move from Syria over to the Bundesliga. So Schalke under Domenico Tedesco becoming quite quite interesting this uh, this season. Lee Schalke's typically been, uh, shall we say, one of the more interesting clubs to to coach in in Germany. So so first of all, what what may Schalke go for him? Nobody's really sure, <laughs> to be honest. He's uh, Tedesco is a young Italian-born coach. Um, he's in his early thirties. He, he's, um, I believe, he's dual nationality, so he is German-Italian, and he certainly grew up, I think, in Germany. So the language and the culture and everything else are absolutely fine. But for a long time, Schalke have, have really struggled um, over the last maybe five, six, seven years. They, they've struggled to find the coach that fits with the the overall ethos of the club. I think it's it's quite often forgotten when we talk about the Bayern Munichs, the, the Borussia Dortmunds of Germany, but Schalke are a huge club in their own right. They, they're one of the, the the best supported clubs in Germany. They they have a, a fan base that is incredibly loyal and passionate, so they, they've certainly been starved of success for a while, but I don't think that when they were looking for a new coach this past summer, I don't think that Tedesco would have been the name who was linked in the media, certainly. I don't think he's somebody who who was really very well known beforehand. He's an exceptionally interesting coach in that he, he was in the same academy class. Uh, all the young German coaches go through basically a university coach in football, university course, sorry, in football, run by the, the German Federation. And in the same intake as Tedesco was Julian Nagelsmann of Hoffenheim. Mm-hmm. Um, Nagelsmann impressed everybody in the course and he... he graduate second in his class the person that was ahead of him was Tedesco so straight away you, you kind of get an idea of the way that, that this man is able to to think about football he'd had a very short spell in the, the second tier of German football with a club I'm going to try and pronounce them I can't promise that I'm going to get it right Ergisbia Au I think is how you pronounce their name very difficult to, to get right I think my German is getting better because I am learning German at the moment but it certainly isn't up to that standard they, they were a very small club and he was able to save them from relegation and in such a way that he kind of caught the eye a little bit so when Schalke were looking Schalke's director of football um, was the ex-Mainz director of football Christian Hedl. Um he was obviously well known for promoting the likes of Thomas Tuchel and Jurgen Klopp to the main coaching position at Mainz when he was in charge. So he's certainly not shy of making a younger, lesser-known appointment. And I think kind of, he may have caught everyone by surprise with this one, but it seems to have been a success. And he talked about the, the ethos of Schalke uh, there. T- tell us a little bit more about that, because it has been such a tricky club to, to lead for, for many, many years. Why, why is that? They're a club who the fan base expects success and success can be relative to an extent, but when you see the likes of Dortmund, who, who suddenly overtook Schalke in the last decade and went on that huge, you know, the, the runs that they had under Jurgen Klopp and winning the league and reaching the final of the Champions League, this is kind of the, the, the kind of thing that Schalke fans think that should be happening with their club. 
So it wasn't so much just the fact that they, they weren't performing well, it was the fact that their main rivals, their biggest rivals, were performing to that extent, I think, that that made it the situation at Schalke more difficult. I mean, Schalke are arguably, historically, the more famous clubs in Dortmund in Germany. They they were the club of the people, the, the miners' club, Gelsenkirchen, where Schalke are based, is a big mining city um, before that industry obviously fell away a little bit. It's still industrial, but that, that was kind of their identity, if you like. They were the club that the miners would get off work and go and watch week in, week out, and that was they, that's something they're very proud of. So I think that the kind of the expectations in the fans, the fan base, when it met, but that was more to do with the way that the club was being run. There, there were a lot of bad decisions that were made in terms of recruitment and managerial appointments. So it, it's kind of more reassuring now to see the club going in, in the right direction but there are still issues at the club okay so Tedesco came out of the the same sort of uh, academy class as you say as, as Julian Nagelsmann and are there any similarities between the, the coaching styles I mean have they been taught in the same way and therefore are we looking at two very similar almost sort of German coaching robots uh, or, or what have we got I don't think robots would quite be way that I would describe them certainly I think Tedesco uh, you can see similarities to an extent not so much in the tactical systems or in the um, the structures that they use within the team, within the game, but in the way that they are able to identify issues within a match situation and make changes that that enable their club to, to steady and to, to go on and hold out for, for three points or even for one point in some cases. I think that Tedesco is a very, very good in-game manager and that he is able to use his players in such a way that he can identify the weaknesses in the opposition or where the opposition is trying to attack them and kind of make the changes to stop that. So Tedesco prefers, similar to Gasparini, he, he's very much a three-at-the-back manager, coach. He prefers three-at-the-back, three centre-halves who are very... Uh, they, they don't press the centre-halves, hold the positions along the width of the defensive line. But ahead of that, it's a, a line of four, usually. Um, Max Meyer, who is the, the ex attacking hope of German football he was um, hugely hugely lauded when he first came through the Schalke system he was a key attacking player in the German youth team so now Tedesco's converted him into a defensive midfielder which it seems to have been a masterstroke given the way that Meyer has suddenly found some consistency to his to his game and it seems to be developing the player that we all hoped that he would now alongside Leon Goretzka who's a more attacking centre midfielder so that that block tends to sit deep with Schalke he Tedesco doesn't quite fit the counter pressing model that we've seen from German coaches over the last five or six years he's not the kind of coach who will look to immediately commit several players into the press when they, they lose the ball. He prefers to have his team drop back into their, their low block to look to defend passing lanes and deny space for the opposition. It's not until the opposition actually play into that block, into the final third, that you'll suddenly see Schalke snap into action. They'll press, win the ball back and try to hit quickly in a counter-attack. So it's very much part of the game plan. We mentioned some... I mean, what you just described there meant sounds a little bit similar to talking about Fonseca at Shakhtar Donetsk. Uh, last last time out, where the the immediate counter press isn't sort of uh, as as prevalent in the in the tactical approach as, as it is in, and that's been quite fashionable for a few years now. Do you think that we're seeing a shift away from that, not just in in German coaching, but in in European coaching? I think so. I think that the the idea of counter pressing is something. I mean, 
the Dortmund side under Klopp, the, the heavy metal football side, he he cultivated and he built. I think that that was kind of the pinnacle um, of gegenpressing or counterpressing. But we also saw elements of it under Guardiola when he was at Bayern Munich, and we see elements of it now under Klopp at Liverpool and Guardiola at Manchester City. But it's not quite the the dogmatic we must press at all times that that we had for a little while under Klopp uh, with Klopp at Dortmund. I think it's more nuanced now in the way that they they use counter-pressing in order to manage specific game situations. So Schalke, for example, they will counter-press, but only in the second phase. So when they first lose the ball and the opposition look to transition to the attack, Schalke will drop back in their low block. If Schalke win the ball back and move forward in a quick counter-attack, if that counter-attack breaks down, then we see them counter-press. But that's very much a, a game-specific situation that they will do, it and the players are are drilled into situations, so they they know in game as things are unfolding. If you like, they know when they're expected to counter press and when they're expected to drop back into their block. So, it's it's testament to, to Tesco's coaching, I think, to his um, ability in the training field. He's able to get them working that well within the first, you know, half of the season that he does in charge of Schalke. Again, okay, and is this is this sort of general shift almost like the antidote to the to the fashionable sort of counter pressure that's been coming uh, been going for a while? That teams are now having to come up with a way to beat that, and then that's now becoming the fashionable way to play because it's proving successful. Yeah, yeah you could well be right. I think that a lot of these things, these tactical concepts that we talk about, they're so fluid and uh, they have a habit of almost recycling themselves. So. Whereas full-on counter-pressing was, was fashionable for a little while, it almost led to teams no longer looking to play it from the back, if you like. So instead of playing out through the defensive line, you now clip the ball over the heads of the, the pressing players at the first instance and try to play from the midfield forwards. And then the pressing team has to adapt to that as well. So, yeah, there are always little nuances and little tweaks. And I think that each, each situation and the, the exact way that teams press and how they, they look to beat the press, I think, differs from team to team, coach to coach. OK, great stuff. So now we're going to take a, a little hop for, from Germany over over to France and Lyon. So Lee, we've been we've been practicing hard before we press record on today's podcast just to make sure we get the pronunciation of this of this young man correct. It's going to be me who's going first. So once again, your your complete uh, tactical credibility and football knowledge will remain intact. So <laughs> we're going to be looking at Hossam Auer and the success of the Leon Academy. Out of, out of ten, what would you give the score of that pronunciation? Uh, I think nine. Nine. In, in all fairness, I have no idea how to pronounce it either. I had to enlist the, the help of a Leon fan on, on Twitter to ask how to pronounce it. So I'm hoping that she gave us the right answer. Excellent stuff. Well, anyway, we, we might have his name absolutely spot on and we might be slightly off. But at the end of the day, who is he? He's a, a young... Um, I like. I prefer to think of him. I think as an attacking midfielder than just a central midfielder. Um, North African descent, which is obviously you know a, a line of genetics that's very prevalent within French football. He is a, a player who is extremely technically good. And in the summer past, we saw um, two players finally make the move from Lyon, who had been there for a long time, who'd came through the Lyon academy themselves. But Maxime Gonalon moved to Roma in Italy. 
and Colentin Deliso moved to Bayern Munich for I think 35 million euros, something along those lines. And those two moves opened up pathways for these players. They, you had Hossam Awar and Lucas Toussaint as well. They they both came through the Lyon Academy and they both stepped up into the first team to place them. So it, it's very much um, part of the Lyon model that they allow these things to happen. But Awar is possibly the more attacking of the two. Awar is a, a very good player in the final third. Technically very, very good. He's, he's great in little passing combinations in and around the penalty area is very quick feet, very quick mind. He combines very well with the likes of Memphis Depay on the left and with Nabil Fakir in the central area. So um, he's obviously already came up and he's earned their trust and their respect and the, the fact that he, they know that he's able to play with them on a technical level, which I think speaks to his, his overall quality. And what sort of age are we talking, Lee? He's 19 years old, so he has just came in and uh, kind of making his first steps in in French football. He's already committed to playing for the French national team as well, so they, they kind of he believes that he is good enough to make an impact on their national team going forward, and that's certainly no mean feat, I think. So he's a young French attacking midfield type, so it's got to be a realistic shout to say that he's likely to be linked to Arsenal over the summer. And if failing Arsenal, probably Paris Saint-Germain will be, will be sniffing around. Uh, is, what, what is his ceiling? What, what sort of move do you think he's going to be looking for and, and when? I think, uh, strange to say that, as soon as you started that question, I knew you were going to mention Arsenal. And I believe I've already seen links in the media. Um, it, it's obviously the, the lazy journalism aspect when they see a French footballer with a tackle player come in, automatically you, you kind of link them to Arsenal. I think that Alouar is, although he's made an impact in the first team this season, he's not the finished article yet. He, he's a player who would be very well served to kind of stay in French football for the next couple of seasons at least, kind of to to fully develop, to round off the, the hard edges that he has coming from the youth academy. You, you kind of have to learn how to be a first team player after that and as much as technical ability will help you and ability on the ball, you've also got to be mentally strong enough before you make the move. I think that if he continues to develop the way that he is, I think that you are looking for an upper-tier European club in terms of his destination. I wouldn't like to see him join PSG, not so much because I don't think he's good enough. I think he does have the, the talent ceiling to play at that level and not even so much because PSG have the capacity to go out and buy ready-made players in that position, but the PSG academy itself is very, very impressive, and there are several players within that academy who I think should have pathways towards PSG first team, and Awar might block that a little bit, but certainly I think that Awar would be well-suited to staying with Lyon for the next two seasons, kind of establish himself fully, and get used to the pace of European football as much as of just domestic football, and then he can take things from there. Most of our listeners are probably when they think of sort of French starlets that have come through in the in the last couple of seasons, they think they're going to think about Mbappe, obviously, as the as the sort of the main figurehead of that of that recent sort of generation. How does our compare sort of uh, to to Mbappe at similar ages? I think uh, when you you talk about Mbappe, you're almost talking about a generational talent. Um, I, it's very difficult to compare players to him. Mbappe is similar to Neymar in that regard that really you have to take these players and almost hold them without comparison at a level on their own where kind of Mbappe can be anything that he wants to be in football if he continues to develop beyond the way he is I think that he could be the, the best player in the world for seven or eight years after Messi and Ronaldo finally stepped down 
So I think it's unfair to to take Awar and to try to compare him directly to that. So Awar is more of a, a central player. He doesn't have the pace that that Mbappe has, although he has played out in the left hand side for for periods with Leon this season. He's very much more of a, I wouldn't say more of an intelligent player, because that's saying that Mbappe's not intelligent, which I don't think is the case. But he's certainly more cerebral. He's more of a thinking player in terms of less natural instinct whenever he gets the ball. He instead he'll look for combinations and look to play through that way. If you take the likes of, I don't even remember, Leon used to have a Brazilian midfielder called Juninho. Mm. Um I think there are comparisons between Awar and Juninho. Uh, Awar is by no means as good a free kick taker. Juninho is. Juninho was one of the the best free kick takers I think I've ever seen. Um, but he kind of has that same tactical and technical profile. So Leon have got a massive reputation for for bringing through young players uh, through their academy. What? Why are they so good? What do they get right that many of the other many other French sides don't? I think there was there was a shift in philosophy from Leon some ten years ago now. For a period of time, Leon I think won I can't remember how many it was seven titles in a row in French football. They, they were the dominant force and they were kind of reaching the quarterfinal stage of the Champions League and performing well in European competitions. They, they were extremely good. But then at one point, they, they started to recruit badly. And as soon as a club at that level operating in that manner starts to recruit badly and without the successes that it had before, they, they immediately start to drop off in terms of quality. So when this happened, the, the chairman, Olas of Leon decided to take a step back and he decided he wanted to refocus the club so that they were concentrating more on homegrown players rather than obviously looking always looking to use the transfer market in order to take these players in. So at that point we saw a huge shift and we saw a large emphasis put on youth players coming through. If you if you read my my still my favourite football book and I know it's a book that you've read, Chris, um The European Game by Dan Fieldsend there's a, a section on that when a chapter when he talks about Leon, he visits Leon for, for one of his chapters and before he goes to the club, he's describing sitting on some steps overlooking the river where there's a, a lot of football courts, you know, these, these concrete courts with mesh mesh sides and mesh and goals. So there's a lot of players who are playing on there and he said the level of skill and ability was, was outstanding. Um and Dan, somebody who's worked with Liverpool before, so he's obviously aware of kind of the qualities that players need to have to to make an impact as academy players or professional players. And he was very, very impressed. And it was a lot of the, you know, the the French players of North African descent, the the Moroccan uh, born or Algerian born parents or grandparents, and, and these kids are coming through. And there's almost that sense of marrying the two set the two styles. So you've got that flair that you get from from these these genetic bloodlines and then you've got the, the abilities of the French. So the fact that Leon are able to kind of take from the best of both worlds and take that into academy setting, I think that's been a huge a huge benefit to them. And once again, we're, we're hearing, and, we, and when we spoke about Atalanta earlier in today's podcast, we're hearing that the team or the clubs that get the reputation of being the best producers of talent, well, it's not just about within the academy how you're training them, how you're developing them. It's about that clear link of a pathway from academy to first-team football and first-team development and first-team exposure, which then goes on to generate that club having the reputation of being a good producer of talent because they're getting the opportunity to, to, to demonstrate their talent on in the the first team stage is that what makes um, Leon the, the the best example of of a French production line? I think so. 
I think for a long time the the best French academy was actually Rennes, who are a much smaller club in terms of stature than Lyon. But Lyon in the last five or six years, I think, have overtaken Rennes now, and they they are the best academy in France. But as we touched upon earlier with the sales of Toulouse and Gonalon, that that took a significant amount of revenue into the club, both in terms of wages saved and in terms of the transfer fee. So that money could have been reinforced into reinvested into central midfield in terms of buying first team players. And it was to an extent with the signing from Angers of Tongai Ndombele. Um, he's a, another very, very promising French player who plays in tandem to likes of Awar. So the, those that sales, though, they, they opened up a pathway for these players, for Awar to come in and make more of an impact. And before Lyon, I mean, Olas is, is well known to not sell players unless it's in his best interest and the best interest of the club to do so. So before Leon were willing to let Toliso in particular go, I think he knew that Awar was was ready to make the first the step up to first team football, and that's something that I think we'll see Leon push on with as the years go on. So I guess now the the top level of sort of French football, we've got four four different styles really, and, and I may be wrong. I'm not saying that these these four clubs are necessarily in the top four places in Ligue 1 at the moment, but they're sort of the clubs that I'm thinking about. You've got Paris Saint-Germain, and it's and it's pretty clear what their what their model is to, to dominate, try and dominate the European game one day. You've got Lyon here, who uh, who are very much on the academy side of things and, and bringing their talents through. You've got Marseille, where let's be honest, it's a somewhat scattergun approach to uh, to how they're trying to remodel their club. And then you've got Monaco, who have had such great success in the last couple of years. Not so much from bringing players through their own academy, but just a very, very strong recruitment model where they've made some excellent purchases and then have been able to hopefully reinvest the money from the sales to, to strengthen the club moving forwards. Of those four styles, Lee, putting you on the spot here, in five years' time, six years' time, ten years' time, whatever, which of those four styles do you think we're going to see at the top of the French game? I think it's difficult. Um, with Monaco, PSG and Marseille, they, they all recruit from, from abroad more than Lyon do. And as we touched upon with Lyon, an extent to, at any point if your recruitment goes bad, for two, three seasons, then that makes a significant impact on your first team and your ability to to compete at the top of the league. Um, the, the issue is that with a club like PSG, for example, they have so much money that they can afford to make mistakes in the transfer market. They can afford to recruit badly. But those bad recruits, those bad sign-ins will, will just be sold on and they will still have spent X amount more money to take in more players that will kind of replace that. I think we'll see Monaco fall away a little bit. I don't think that their recruitment is sustainable. I think we've already seen a drop-off in form this season from last, and I think that we may see the same again next year if the likes of Thomas Lemar certainly moves on. If Fabinho moves on, then how they replace these players is going to be key. And I think Marseille are a side who are very much relying on individual players at the moment. Florian Tovan, the, the ex-Newcastle player, for example, is one of the best players in French football this season. and Looking like they move on in the summer from Marseille. Dimitri Payet, again, an ex-West Ham player. He's another attacking player they have. But this this form of recruitment, I don't think, is sustainable for them. Lyon, on the other hand, I think that their youth system is sustainable. I think if if Ola can, can keep the, the same philosophy at the club and can keep the common threads running through from the youth team to the first team, I think we will see them competing at the top of French football. 
but I think that they'll be doing so still with PSG. No, I think I'd have to agree with that assessment that just because of the sheer wealth of PSG, they they can't they most likely will always be be up there. But we have seen, and even in many countries where there's a financially dom- dominant side, there, there's always the the chink in the armor where where a team can come through and surprise them, as we saw with Monaco. Uh, Monaco very very recently, so it'd be interesting to see how Leon do continue over the over the next sort of decade with this with this approach that is certainly bearing fruit for them very well. So we're going to move from a, from a very well run club in in Leon, and we're going to pop over to Merseyside where we're going to have a, a little chat about Everton now. Well, Lee, as we said, we're, we're going to talk about Everton Football Club, a, a club that has been traditionally run pretty well, certainly during the David Moyes era, where on limited funds, Moyes made them a, a competitive Premier League side. And uh, you get that you get that typical sort of moment where the, the club and the fans and everyone wants just that little bit more because football's quite a greedy sport by nature. And they were crying out for that investment and that little bit more money, which they then got. Uh, but since the uh, since the pounds have come raining in, it's not gone too well for Everton. So uh, so what is the problem at Everton? <laughs> I don't think we've got enough time to really, really cover that, Chris. I think, as you say, there was a sense that they, they, they had relative success last season with their, their final league position. They've qualified for the Europa League. Realistically, for as much as, for, for me, Everton are a big club, realistically, how much further do they think they can push themselves from there? And this is where the, the sense of investment came from. The, the fans were keen to see the club invest significantly, and this summer they really did so. But they seem to have invested almost without a plan. And when you recruit, when you run a recruitment department in football, you've really got to be thinking two, three years ahead. You, you can't just come in all of a sudden with a couple of months' notice and be told, right, here's 100 million euros, go out and spend it and recruit. It doesn't work, and they seem. I mean, some of the signers, Davy Klassen, who they, they signed from Ajax, he's a fantastic player. He was the key for the Ajax team last season that reached the Europa League, but he fits his 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 own tactical profile, if you like. It doesn't fit what Everton were looking to do, either under Ronald Koeman or now under Sam Allardyce. So straight away you've got that money, and although he played at the weekend. He's not featured for weeks now for the Everton first team. So what was the sense of buying him? What was the plan when you bought him? How did you sell his his role in the first team when you bought him? And even you look at Sigurdsson, you know, another fantastic player who plays in a similar role. He's a he's bit, bit more adept at playing either wider or kind of tucking in off the striker than clashing is. So there's a bit more flexibility around Sigurdsson. But again, was there a real plan in signing him? Did you have a role for him in the first team or did you just go out and buy him because his statistical output in terms of assists and his ability from dead balls was so good over the last two or three years? Is that why you bought him? But again, with no plan, it's very difficult to actually diagnose fully what's going on with Everton at the moment. 
We'll, we'll probably touch on Sam Allardyce in, in a moment, but I think it's important to stay around the recruitment model sort of side of things at the moment. Everton brought in Leicester City's Steve Walsh to uh, to head up the, the recruitment side of things at Everton and, and to, to lead this new dawn of, of having the finances. And even for me, uh, at the time, I felt that was a very curious appointment because Steve Walsh had made his name at Leicester City, but made his name by finding absolutely unpolished diamonds in, in lower level football that were going to be affordable risks, shall we say. So spending 250000 or whatever it was on Mares was, even if we never heard of Mares in the future, wasn't a massive gamble, wasn't a massive outlay, no big issue if it doesn't come off. Obviously, we know what happened with Mares as, as, as a result. Jamie Vardy, okay, an element of pressure on Jamie Vardy because he, was, he cost a bit more money from non-league, but still when you're paying a million quid for a, for a striker and even in the championship level if it doesn't come off okay we can probably recoup some of that money it's not a great a great issue steve walsh's recruitment was based around finding these players for not much money goes to everton steve walsh has suddenly got the keys to the kingdom and that's got to be an inherent risk, surely. Surely you want to be bringing in a recruitment director who has actually got experience of spending that kind of money and recruiting at that kind of level. Steve Walsh did not recruit a team that he thought was going to win the English Premier League. He was recruiting a team that they hoped would stay in the English Premier League, no matter how much we get caught up in the romance of things. So it's a massive shift, surely, to go from that to, to Everton. I think so. Um, but the, I think the issue that you have is that when you have... Uh a person, a director of scouting and player recruitment like Steve Walsh, the job that he did at Leicester City with this identification and development of of players and of taking in these players at low value, you know, low risk transfers, I think that that becomes extremely attractive to clubs. And then until he's had a position at a club as he has now with Everton when he's had money, I think until you, you take that step and kind of give him a little bit more resources, I don't think you quite have a sense of, of his ability with that, if you know what I mean. Mm. So it, it's not so much a case of he was taken into, I think he was he was taken in by Everton because they saw the almost holistic approach that Leicester had to their recruitment and the way that they identified targets. They made these signings and Golo Kante is another one who obviously they hit big on yeah. in for a club like Leicester when they sign these players there's a little bit less pressure that these players have a little bit more time to kind of bed into the atmosphere and to develop a little bit within within the club whereas Everton he's came in and there really haven't been very many of these signings you'd expect that for all the big money deals you would still expect the odd deal like a, a Mares or like a Conte but you haven't seen it very much barring I think the best piece of business they've done in recent years was the the signing of Adrissa Guy in the, the centre midfield. I think that he's a, a fantastic player and a player who will move on from Everton in the next year or two, I think, to a much bigger side. Other than that, though, you can't really point at many immediate successes. And he, he was going to be the one that I was going to mention as well. The fact that, he, again, he came in from good value from Villa after they got relegated. His performances for Villa were not at the level of the general Villa team of the time. He, he was way above that. And yeah, that was a, a fantastic, a fantastic bit of business. 
you look at what else that Steve Walsh has done around that, and even even the 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 bringing back of Wayne Rooney, romantically a lovely story that that Wayne's going to get to finish his career at his hometown club, etc., etc. But as a team that has got genuine ambition of going from where they are to the next level, it made no sense because I think even if you are Sam Allardyce now, or even the managers before Sam Allardyce, what is Rooney's role in this new look Everton? They struggle to tell you. Yeah, I think so. His performances are perhaps, I mean, I think that Rooney was was unfairly maligned when he was at Manchester United for the last season or two. I think that a lot of people gave him a hard time when actually his performances weren't that bad, for largely at least. I think with Rooney, you need to give him a defined role in your team. You, you can't just have a player the way that he was when he was younger, where he would cover the grass, he would be all over the pitch. I think now you've got to be a bit more clever with the way that you use him. And certainly I think that his best role at the moment be as a number 10, but again, that's not a position that Everton use. So instead, you've seen him in centre midfield, you've seen him up front, you've even seen him wide for times for Everton this season. And as much as he's still technically an extremely talented footballer, he doesn't have the, the physical capacity, the physical profile anymore to, to fulfil these roles, I think in the, the Premier League so like you say it was very much a romantic choice and certainly I, I believe that it would have got a lot of fans on side when the deal went through and maybe even still now the fact that they took Rooney back and he's he's getting to finish his career at his boyhood club it's a great story but maybe not the smartest choice when you're trying to make that leap from Europa League qualification to Champions League qualification. Now then we've got the whole issue around Koeman departing and then the clear lack of follow-up plan from Everton between Koeman's going to be going, what, have we got a shortlist already of potential candidates or, or are we going to be panicking and we're going to literally going to have to go and beg Sam Allardyce to take, to take the job because we've already turned him down once in, in the recruitment process. Again, this just smacks of a, a club with no real organisational value at the moment. What, what was your take on the Allardyce thing? I think it showed a real lack of joined up thinking um, amongst the the powers that be at Everton. I think that if you're looking to recruit a coach, and this, is, this isn't only something that can be levelled at Everton, an awful lot of clubs do this. When you look at the different names that they're linked with and names that they acknowledge that they're linked with and they're interested for coaching jobs, they, there's such a variance between those coaches in terms of the, the way that they work, they uh, do they develop youth, do they prefer experienced players, are they attacking or defensive orientated coaches, do they like to spend a lot of money in transfer market, are they better working with the squad that they have. The, there's no sense of, I mean, if you're, you're talking about recruitment for a player, recruitment in the modern game now, it, you build a profile of the player as much as anything else. It's not simply a case of, the, the head of recruitment gets a phone call from a scout saying you should sign player X. The the head of scouting then goes on and, and you know tells the chairman to make a bid for player X and the, the basis of that one recommendation. You build a whole holistic profile looking at a lot of different strengths and weaknesses, how how they play in different, you know, situations against big clubs, small clubs, home away, all these things. And it should be the same for a manager. If you're recruiting at that level, um, the, the head coach or manager position in a football club is extremely important. I, I don't believe that in the model I prefer that it should be the most important, but it is certainly important. You need to have the right person and you need to be able to sit down and identify three or four key characteristics in terms of playing style, 
preference in terms of transfer market, in terms of their own character, if you like, the, their own personality. You need to be able to identify them and then build a recruitment shortlist for your manager position based on those you know, those guidelines. And too many clubs don't do it. So you, you saw Everton linked with Silva when he was still at Hull. Then he was they were linked heavily with Sean Dyche at Burnley. Those two alone, extremely difficult different coaches, not by any means bad coaches or yeah. bad churches but extremely different and then eventually they come back full circle and land on Sam Allardyce where there's no con- continuity in terms of the players that Koeman prefers and would like to recruit and the players that Allardyce prefers and would like to recruit. So straight away you're writing off a lot of your summer business straight away just by making that, that one choice and it just smacked a desperation. It's fascinating because with Marcus Silva being being at Watford when when it came round again, and what I think Watford were quoting something. This might be paper talk, but they were quoting something like ten million pounds to to release him from his contract at Watford. Now, providing the necessary homework has gone in, and actually this there is the joined up thinking. You can see how Marco Silva can slot into the existing squad, and 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 everything fits exactly what you want Everton to be as a football club. For me, ten million pounds for for your head coach for say the next three seasons, four seasons, and that then equals. The, uh, the the getting into the European competition, the the, ma- the maintenance of the TV revenues, etc., etc. Bearing in mind the crazy money that gets spent on the whim of somebody on a footballer, compare it to spending fifty million quid on Sigurdsson, for example. Now, ten million suddenly, if it's done properly, doesn't seem like a great uh, a, a, a greatly overspending sort of situation. It almost feels like common sense. So. It surprises me that clubs are so reluctant to spend the money on the head coach, yet they're very willing to overpay on players who have got an even less guaranteed sort of chance of success. Yeah, it's been the case for a long time. Particularly, I think that's an issue in English clubs. They they almost undervalue the the position of coach. I think head coach. I think that that's changing, and I think you've seen it change with the likes of Liverpool appointing Jurgen Klopp. And Manchester City are putting Pep Guardiola. I mean, I know that there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of weeks that Manchester City are currently renegotiating a contract with Pep Guardiola. So uh, there's a sense that they appreciate what they have with him. And I think that more and more we will see coaches almost bought and sold in that sense. That clubs will have to pay release clauses to get the really good coaches out of jobs. It's certainly a better idea, I think, than going round the, the list of coaches who are currently unemployed mm. and, and looking for one that almost closely fits what you're looking for instead of paying that little bit of money for one who fits all of your criteria. And that's not to say that Silva would have been a success at Everton. I think that I think he would have been better suited to the squad than Allardyce is, certainly. And how much money would you have saved yourself if, if Allardyce is still in charge next season? How much money are Everton going to pay getting players in to fit the style that Allardyce wants? And could that money have been saved by spending a bit more money appointing the coach? I mean, when Allardyce came in, I mean, he was being brought in under the the guise of, well, we definitely won't get relegated with with Sam Allardyce in charge. But Everton was something like eighth when he took charge of his first game. And I appreciate it's very tight in the Premier League between 11th and 19th still. And it's, it's, it's spread out a little bit in the last couple of weeks. But certainly two weeks ago, there were three points between those positions. So yeah. it's, it's still quite tight there. But even then, the, the appointment seemed 
just negative about the rest of the season, let alone what could be achieved that season, considering then that they still were quite close to Burnley and a Europa League spot wasn't a million miles away for for Everton in, in that respect. It, it feels like it, it feels like it is now. However, Everton have also been quite well known recently for bringing through talented youngsters. And do you feel that's something that's going to be sort of closed that'll be that'll be a little bit closed down for the rest of the season and if Allardyce does get the second year or the the remaining uh, 12 months of his 18 month contract do you feel that's going to close down for the younger players at Everton I think it'll be difficult for them I, I I think that to a large extent a lot of these younger players struggled a little bit to come into the side under Koeman as well so it's not purely something that's that's assigned to Allardyce but Allardyce certainly is more comfortable working with experienced players than he is with young players and I think that has a huge impact I mean you look at the the underage England type teams that were so successful last summer there was such a high proportion of those teams that had that came from Everton mm. so they're obviously doing something right in terms of the way that they identify and develop young players it's just whether I, I think that we've talked about Atalanta and Lyon and, and both of these sides are extremely good at creating pathways to the first team for the youngsters and I think that the Everton younger players are kind of struggling with that a little bit I mean we saw Adamola Lukman move from Everton to RB Leipzig in the winter um, only a loan deal but straight away he's been getting first team minutes and yeah. there were reports after the move that Allardyce couldn't understand why he would want to make the move to, yeah. to Germany for his development he thought it would be better suited moving to a West Brom or a championship club if you like so there's that kind of sense that Allardyce is still the kind of coach who's very much set in the almost the the older mentality of how to develop and get the best out of a young player whereas Lukeman was willing to take a chance moving to a different culture where obviously the language is going to be an issue for him but he did that in order to develop more as a player so I'm not convinced that Allardyce is the best person to be in charge if you're, you're talking about continuing the the famous Everton School of Science and the, their bringing through of young talent. It's, it's, it's fascinating with Allardyce because uh, at the beginning of his career he was cutting edge, he was trying things that, that mm-hmm. even the likes of Arsene Wenger were a little bit behind on um, but, and they, they were sort of uh, uh, loggerheads when Arsene's career was probably at its peak. And it's, it is just fascinating how over the course of a managerial career that someone like Allardyce almost stops at a certain point. It's almost like he's learned enough. It's almost as if he's got to, he, he's got as advanced as he's going to be and then that's it. And it's, you see then the other, coach, sort of the other coaches coming through and, and taking things to the next level. And the, and the, Lookman, and the Lookman situation was, was sort of a, the prime example really of the door shutting for young Everton players, bringing in Theo Walcott on the money that he's going to be being paid and then sort of not then leaving a place for someone like Lookman who's got a lot of potential abilities uh, it's uh, that sums up a lot about what's probably wrong in, in the English Premier League at the moment so Lee I think that pretty much uh, draws us to the end of today's podcast uh, I believe you've got a, a, a few pieces though from, from our website that you'd like to tell everyone about yeah, I think, I think it's important with these podcasts that we can use the vehicle, if you like, to promote some of the pieces that, that our, our writers and our analysts are putting together for ESDF analysis. I picked out two from the last week that have been particular favourites of mine. Um, one from David Cellini, who's been with us from the very start. He was one of the, the first writers that we recruited for ESDF when we were kind of getting off the ground. 
and he took a deep dive into the recruitment model of Sampdoria over the last few years. Um, it's one of the more underrated recruitment stories that we've, we've seen in European football with a lot of undervalued markets being tapped and researched and David's put a lot of work into putting together that piece. I would strongly recommend that you go and check it out. The The other piece that I picked out for this week was by Tom Robinson. I think, Chris, you and I were, were talking about this a couple of weeks ago and it's a huge advantage for us having somebody like Tom on board and writing for us mm. because of his knowledge of South American players. He's, he's identifying almost the next wave of of um, young South American talent before they come through and before they make an impact. So he took a look for, at, for us at Ignacio Poseto, um, another exciting Argentine player that you should go and check out. He, again, a lot of research into that piece and it's a very good tactical breakdown of the player. No, and that's definitely what we're looking to do a lot more of on, on ESDF over the over the coming months and stuff. And having someone like Tom uh, on the ground there really does does make it so much easier for us to try and get there first and and help you under help you guys who are reading and listening to what we're doing understand who the uh, the next players to to keep your eyes open for it are going to be. So it's ab- absolutely top work there from from Tom and all the writers on the site as well. There's definitely some uh, some superb content for you to be checking out this week. Lee, we're going to be back in a couple of days actually. Aren't we're doing a we're doing a special podcast in a couple of days' time to mark the arrival of a new website into the FMG portfolio. Do you want to tell uh, Do you want to tell the guys a little bit about the website that we've got? Yeah, um, I think you, you contacted me last week or the week before to say that the deal was close. Um, FMG have basically taken over Ajax Daily, the the foremost English language Ajax Amsterdam site. The, the guys there were doing a great job at providing interesting content and certainly their their social media activities and the, their profile on there extremely strong amongst the, the English speaking Ajax community if you like. So it's great to have them on board and I think I'll be doing some writing for the site going forward and we're hoping to continue going forward and build on what they've already done. So we'll be putting together an Ajax special of the podcast in a couple of days where we will have a deep dive into to certain aspects of the club, both in the past and, and how it is now. As we touched on uh, in the first podcast that we did together, Lee, but being the age that we are, Ajax sort of naturally holds quite a special place in our hearts just because of the, what they achieved in the in the mid 90s so so to 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 welcome the Ajax daily guys into the FMG fold uh, to be able to work closely with them and continue as you say that the fantastic work that they've done already is a, a very special time for us so we're looking forward to this podcast guys and if there is anything that you want us to touch on in in that podcast you're probably going to have a 24 hour window from from today's podcast going live and us recording the uh, recording the next one so do get in touch and we will do our best to answer any questions Lee if people want to find you on social media where do they have to go you can find me on at FM analysis great stuff and uh, I am at Chris Darwin FMG and of course you really should be following the ESDF Twitter if you're not already. It's at ESDF Analysis. And as we've mentioned several times today, the website is ESDFanalysis.com. Once again, this has been a podcast from FMG, and we look forward to speaking to you again in a couple of days' time. Music.